This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Fair Square, your one-stop shop for vegan products online. They offer Canada-wide shipping and donate a portion of each sale to animal sanctuaries and animal rights groups like us. Check them out at fair, that's F-A-I-R hyphen square dot C-A. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 76 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm your host, Camille Labchuk, joined by my co-host today, Jessica Scott-Reed. Hey, Jess, how's it going? Hey, Camille, how are things over in Toronto? Oh, you know, I mean, the weather's getting nicer, but the COVID cases are going up and the scientists are all basically saying this is like a disaster. So I'm kind of stressed, but, uh, you know, that's life. We've got a long weekend this weekend, so that's kind of nice. Yes, we are busy Easter prepping for our non-family Easter dinner over here, like usual, it seems, <laughs> just like last year. Uh, my mom and I had contemplated getting together, but in the end decided not to. She's, you know, she's up for the vaccine soon. And uh, she said, we've made it this far. Let's not let's not screw it up right before she gets she gets the shot. So it's just going to be my daughter Clover and I. I'm preparing with all the great vegan Easter treats. I was able to track down some Moo Free and No Way brand um, Easter chocolate bunnies and eggs. Those are imported. Oh, from, good yeah. for you. They're imported from the UK. I used to, when I was living in Europe, I used to buy them all the time. They're a little bit trickier to get here. We don't seem to have vegan Easter treat brands so available. I don't know if it's a Manitoba thing, but thankfully they brought in these great brands from the UK and I was able to scoop some up. So my daughter Did you will buy be- them online or did you find them in a store locally? Oh, I found them in a, in a store. Actually, a couple Sobeys were carrying some No Way products and then a local vegan gluten-free uh, cafe called Coco Beans here in Winnipeg was carrying some of the Moo Free. So I got a big chocolate egg. So yeah, Clover won't know the difference uh, that her her Easter is any different than anybody else's, which is always what I'm going for. Not missing out on much these days as a vegan. That's, that's, that's right. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've just been so busy or... I guess I'm busy. I don't even know, but I, I made no effort for Easter. (laughs) And by the time I started thinking about it, I was like, oh, I see all the chocolate stuff online is now sold out and unavailable. There's like a few bakeries here. I mean, we've got tons Mm. of vegan bakeries in Toronto. There's like Bunners, there's Tori's Bake Shop, there's, you know, the Good Rebel Vegan Grocery Store. Yes. And they all usually have awesome Easter stuff. Like I think last year I got these Tori's eggs that were just like amazing cream egg style. But this year I just put no effort in. So, well, I managed to order a roast beast, um, you know, ah. like veggie roast from uh, Very Good Butchers. That's yeah. what I was oh, looking cool. for. I've, I've heard of that. I've heard that it is amazing. Yeah, I think our other host, Peter, had one for Christmas, actually. Right, right. That's reviews. right. And everything else I've tried from them has been excellent. So, yeah, I think that'll be a good Easter dinner. Oh, good for you. Yeah. So good stuff. Well, then the other thing that we've got coming up, well, by the time the podcast comes out, this will have happened and we'll probably know the result of it. But actually on Wednesday, March 31st, Animal Justice is seeking leave to intervene in an Alberta Court of Appeal uh, appeal that's coming up about animal cruelty sentencing. So super interesting case, Jess. Uh, A young man was convicted of kicking his dog and causing some serious injuries. Dog was okay in the end and adopted out to another home. So there's a happy ending there. But, you know, he was initially sentenced to um, serve a jail sentence on the weekend. Mm. An appeal 
converted that to a conditional sentence order, which is basically a community sentence, like house arrest is typically how we think about it. And the restrictions can be more or less serious, mm. depending on the circumstances. And the prosecutors are appealing that to the Alberta Court of Appeals. So we are hoping to intervene in that. And I guess in the next episode, we'll be able to let people know how that turned out. But uh, yeah, so. Oh, good luck with that. Another court thing. Thank you. And in other news, the episode that you're listening to is going to come out on Friday, April 2nd, which coincidentally is the last day, day to present or sorry, to submit to be a presenter at the 2021 Canadian Animal Law Conference, which is taking place October 1st to 3rd. So if you're listening to this Friday and you want to present, it's not too late. If you miss the deadline, I might even still let you in if you send me an email. <laughs> but it depends. Depends. Well, that's exciting. I love the Canadian Animal Law Conference. I loved going to it in person in Halifax. I loved attending it virtually online. It's all good stuff. Yeah. And this one is going to be especially exciting. I mean, it's going to be online again because I think it's anyone's guess as to whether we'll be able to True. do much come the fall. Certainly, I think large like 300, 400 person gatherings are going to be the last thing we're yeah, allowed to good do call. again. Good call. Good <laughs> call. But we still have some really exciting programming on the agenda. So can't reveal the details of it yet, but suffice to say, you guys are going to be super interested in it. So stay tuned for more on that. Now, if you want to help support this podcast, you can leave us a review. We now have over 155 star reviews, and it's a key way that this podcast gets boosted up in the algorithm and a key way to uh, you know, inform people about its existence. And if you rate us, it helps us find more listeners so we can expose them to all these important ideas. So if you'd like to help us out, please go leave us a review. You can click five stars or whatever you think we deserve, but also a written review makes an even bigger impact. And you can also support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Thank you to our new supporter, Enjoying Good Content, Inc. Uh, new Patreon prize tiers. $5 level gets you a mailed card to say thanks, as always. But now you get a pawn order sticker, too. $20 gets your choice between an official pawn order mug or t-shirt, which we know are the bomb. Uh, and we also have t-shirts available for everyone now at shop.animaljustice.com. And anyone who supports us at the $10 a month level or more gets a 15% discount at our online store. Not bad. All right. So Jess, we have an exciting main topic today. We're going to talk about vaccines and the ethical issues surrounding those for vegans and animal testing. But before we get into that, as always, there is tons in the news. So let's start with a story out of Ontario. The uh, Last Chance for Animals did an undercover expose of Millbank Fur Farm. So they released this footage in 2018 showing animals suffering from horrible wounds without uh, any veterinary treatment, animals living in filthy, squalid conditions, par for the course, frankly, when it comes to fur farms. And that fur farm actually pleaded guilty in March to offenses under the, well, provincial animal welfare um, laws in Ontario and they were fined. So I don't know the amount of the fine yet. We're trying to find this information out. Hopefully more information will be forthcoming. But this is super interesting to me, Jess, because as of December 2020, undercover exposés like this mm -hmm. one became illegal in Ontario. And that's why you and Animal Justice are going to court to attempt to strike those egg egg laws down is because cases like this show the value mm -hmm. of those undercover exposés. This farm never would have been exposed and convicted of cruelty if not for that footage. Yeah, to me, this is exactly the evidence that's required to show how important undercover uh, investigation work is. I mean, um, this is something that I would hope to speak about in the media, and I hope other reporters and journalists take up this topic as well. Uh, and it's only thanks to going undercover that this ever gets exposed to the public and to the media. Yeah, it's super important. You cannot rely on the fur industry to present accurate information itself about the state of animals on fur farms because it's got every incentive to sanitize that image and to try to present better information than reality actually suggests. So that shows the value of work like this. And, uh, you know, round of applause for Last Chance for Animals. Yeah. And just another tool in our toolbox for, for the for the suit. Yeah. So lots going on. Speaking of ag gag in your province of Manitoba. 
yeah, I know uh, you guys on the last podcast discussed a lot about um, the language that finally was made public about the egg egg bills that are happening before uh, the authorities to be able to make a decision here in Manitoba. And after that was released, made public and animal justice, along with um, World Animal Protection. And who else was it that you guys made the joint um, statement with? Oh, good question. I can't even remember. <laughs> it was it was a great statement that really made it clear how uh, these proposed bills uh, could be very damaging for animals, for protesters, and for journalists like me. Subsequently, there was a lot of uh, uh, talk in the media following that from both sides. Uh, it was every day was sort of a new op-ed from somebody. Um, the first one came from um, a former CEO of the Winnipeg Humane Society, Vicki Burns, along with uh, my friend Brittany uh, Semenek. She um, is a animal welfare consultant now for the Winnipeg Humane Society. They took the opportunity to, to discuss not only the egg egg bills, but how... Um, they they took the opportunity to also talk about gestation crates for pigs, um, so that I thought that was a really clever way of using you know this platform, the segue of egg egg laws, and then discussing how you know this this other uh, issue is also still something that needs to be talked about. Uh, subsequently, the next day, um, Manitoba livestock producers they they published their uh, own op-ed. Focusing, uh, the headline is legislation aimed at preventing livestock disease, uh, as if they're they're jumping on these bills as a way of saying that you know in the time of a pandemic caused by animals that now we have to care much more about disease prevention on farms. You and I both know, I don't think there's ever been a case that an activist has introduced or spread or caused any kind of biosecurity hazard on a farm, right? Certainly none that I've been aware of. Right, right. So but they, we do know, we do know that lots of outbreaks come from the actions of farmers. Yeah. So they uh, really jumped on, on that, which I thought was a very... Uh, weak argument. Uh, then the next day was me. <laughs> so I wrote one uh, uh, discussing specifically about trucks because it seems that um, this one bill really focuses on on activists outside of transport trucks and slaughterhouses, particularly the Save Movement activists who um, bear witness and gather footage. And I interview um, one of the participants in uh, Manitoba Animal Save and Winnipeg Chicken Save. And she d said exactly what we've been saying for so long is that if she's not there, if they're not there to gather this footage, to have those interactions with animals, and then to be able to tell people in the media like me or who else will listen to put it on, uh, you know, social media for the public to see if they're not there, no one's there. And no, no one's one, there. And no one will see the truth. She she said, you know, the CFIA isn't going to show people what, what we show people. So if it's not for us, then it's no one. Um, so I, I really hope that that Manitobans who read the Winnipeg Free Press were able to read, you know, this ongoing discussion. You know, the back and forth is important, too, um, and are contacting, you know, their leadership that need to know that they don't agree with these proposed bills. Yeah, it's super important. And I'm sure you've been following the legislative debates, too. So just over the last few weeks, there's been tons of discussion about these bills in the House. And we really need to give a shout out to NDP MLA mm -hmm. Nahani Fontaine for just being amazing. She has stood up and said things that people are often not willing to say in legislatures mm -hmm. about the importance of protecting animals and how these bills are just an assault on both our freedoms and a democracy, but also on animal rights. So thank you, Nahani Fontaine. Yes, yes. Let's let's hope. I mean, what do you what do you think is going to happen with this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I my feeling is that there's a lot of opposition to these bills. And, um, you know, especially after uh, people learn about what's happening in Ontario and the fact that the government's being sued for similar legislation, I think there's a very strong case for just scrapping it. Now, I don't mm -hmm. know that the government's going to do that because the farm industry is very powerful and it's very mm -hmm. good at mobilizing its supporters. But, uh, you know, I think if you're in Manitoba and you're listening to this right now, you still have a great opportunity to try to influence this. So the committee that's going to study this legislation is accepting submissions from the public. So you can actually sign up and testify yourself. And I know that sounds scary if you've never done it before. And I think the first time I testified, I was probably terrified, but it's not actually that bad. <laughs> you really just show up, you say what you have on your mind, and usually they leave it at that. They don't usually ask the really tough questions of the citizens. They usually leave that for the lawyers and the people who work on this stuff professionally. So if you want to make a difference, uh, you can contact us to find out how to sign up. 
Excellent. Yeah, we gotta we gotta mobilize because you know the other side certainly is and will. That's absolutely right. All right. Well, and we've talked a lot about on this this podcast over the years about live export and the untold amounts of suffering that that industry causes, especially on international um, ocean liners taking animals around the world. And just I'm sure you've been following the Suez Canal story for its sort of like meme ability and just the weirdness of it. Yes. But I was surprised to learn. I mean, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I still was. It just didn't occur to me that, of course, there are animals on ships waiting to go through the canal who are being affected by this. Yeah, so many, uh, I think, what was at least 20 livestock ships uh, in this article from The Guardian. It, It was really brought to my attention, uh, you know, it's like something you, you hope isn't happening, but you know in the back of your mind it is until somebody finally puts it in a, an article out there. And it was uh, our friend Charles Adler on Twitter who actually tweeted and said, you know, there's a lot of memes coming out of this situation, a lot of humor being found in it, he says, but people aren't really thinking of the fact that there are animals on ships, hundreds and hundreds of animals stuck on ships without food, without water. Uh, I mean, their destination is obviously uh, horrific, but to be stuck like that day after day, we already had this situation. Situation, right with that one ship stuck off the coast of Spain that had nowhere to go and I believe all the animals had to be killed they were on the water for months months suffering uh, all of this just goes to talk more about how live export is just like an abomination it's really I think one of the worst um, cases of cruelty that we subject animals to on this planet yeah there's absolutely no excuse for it anymore there is no reason anyone needs to be shipping animals from one place in the world to mm-hmm. another place in the world that's just not acceptable so you know as of the time we're recording this they've now finally freed that ship so traffic is going to start to move again but my understanding is it's still quite backed up because they can only take a certain number of ships through the canal per day it kind of depends on having enough pilots to actually help them navigate mm-hmm. it it's not just a matter of like okay go just go faster so I don't know what's going to happen. Um, we'll keep an eye on it. I really hope it doesn't result in even more suffering than they're already enduring. Yeah, and already doomed to towards. Yeah, because they're going to be slaughtered either way. Yep. Have you heard of Fair Square? They're a vegan online store that features a wide variety of Canadian-made and ethically-made products. Fair Square is run by vegans for vegans and donates a portion of each sale to animal sanctuaries and animal rights groups. And you get to choose right at checkout who you want to support. So whether you're looking for vegan cheese and meat, snacks, fair trade chocolate, sustainable clothing, gift baskets, or more, Fair Square has it all in one simple shopping experience and ships Canada-wide. You can find them online at fair-square.ca. That's F-A-I-R square.ca and as a pod order listener you can get 15% off your next order by using the code AJ15 at checkout. All right. Well, that's all of our news for today. So for our main topic, we wanted to talk about vaccines. Now this is a, uh, you know, this is a little dangerous waters, right? Yes, like people have topic. strong opinions about vaccines. Hot topic. And I think, you know, people I know in Canada are now finally getting them. My uncle, I think, has this appointment this week. Uh, you know, other people are starting to get their call. And we're expecting more vaccine supplies. So I think younger folks like us, Jess, are going to soon get the jab too, which I'm excited about personally. But we wanted to delve into this for a couple of reasons. Now, first of all, I should say neither of us are scientists or doctors (laughs) or have any particular expertise in vaccines. So please uh, do not take my word for some of this because I don't think I'm here to offer any sort of medical opinion about the risks of a vaccine or the benefits. I am not a doctor. I just listen to doctors. Yes. And doctors are saying it's a very good idea to get a vaccine. We're just we're just two vegans having a discussion about the facts that are out there on the ethics of being a vegan considering vaccines, right? That's what we're doing here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Being a vegan or a vegetarian or someone who cares about animals, like there's inextricable links between vaccinations and the use of animals. So we wanted to explore that in a little depth. And I've actually done now a fair amount of research just to try to understand this issue for myself. So we thought it would be useful to um, to share with all of you as well. So uh, you know, another caveat. So I'm not going to try to convince anybody to get a vaccine based on effectiveness or anything, but I, I will break, we will break down some of the ethical issues. And the argument is that yes, vegan should absolutely get this vaccine and that not getting it is not going to save any animals, but getting it actually probably will. It'll help us be better activists. So we will get into all of that. But if you're, if you're concerned about vaccines for other reasons, and I will say, Jess, like, 
obviously I know tons of people who are vegan or vegetarian for ethical reasons. And uh, I know some people who are hesitant about the vaccine too. There doesn't tend to be a lot of folks telling me that they're hesitant about it because of animal testing or because Mm -hmm. of animal ingredients. I think people have other reasons for hesitancy around safety and effectiveness. So if you're concerned about those issues, I would strongly encourage you to talk to your doctor, do some research, um, you know, based on what government health officials are saying, because they're issuing really solid guidance. And I trust those folks quite a lot. Uh, I've relied a lot on that information and it's given me a lot of comfort. So if you're curious, I urge you to do the same thing. Mm hmm. Okay, so let's talk about vaccines. All right, so in Canada right now, Jess, we've got a few vaccines approved for use. So the main ones that we're using right now are the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer slash BioNTech vaccine. Now, these are both mRNA vaccines, and we're going to get into what that actually means. And then we've got the AstraZeneca slash Oxford vaccine, which is a little bit different, and uh, it doesn't rely on mRNA technology. It relies on something else. But I wanted to try to figure out how many animals were being used to produce and test these vaccines. Now, you wrote a piece back in, was it April or May, just in the Global Mail? Yeah, it was right when when all of this discussion was coming out about um, animal testing for the Moderna vaccine and specifically um, about how they were able to simultaneously do animal testing and human clinical trials at the same time, which had really never happened before. And the discussion I had with, you know, our friend, Dr. Charu, uh, who runs the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods at the University of Windsor, um, was that it seemed like when push come to shove, suddenly this very long-standing um, standard practice, legal requirement for pre-animal testing suddenly went out the window, <laughs> and suddenly we could Funny, do these. Isn't it? <laughs> suddenly, human trials and and animal testing could happen at the same time. Um, and so, you know, it was just a really great argument for her um, cause, which is to focus more on uh, human biology. She develops human-based uh, anim- or human-based testing methods um, using uh, what we call, you know, disease in a dish and organs on a chip, things like that. Um, so it was an interesting discussion. And it seems like um, it's really progressed, obviously. It's been almost a year later uh, where we are talking about how after this is all over, that she and I and many people are hoping for a new normal when it comes to standards of animal testing. Yeah. So that's kind of one optimistic thing that this pandemic may have given us in the the expedited development of vaccines. So vaccines typically take between five and 20 years from product development or conception of it until it gets on the market. And one of the reasons for that is that often extensive animal trials are required, extensive human trials are required. And so, as you mentioned, we're now seeing those things happen simultaneously. So I dug a little bit into what tests Moderna and Pfizer have actually done. And I will just say, I'm pretty sure from my research, this is consistent with all the vaccine companies. So they tend to have done tests on macaque monkeys and mice simultaneously to doing the clinical trials in humans. So Moderna, for example, they tested on macaques and mice and they released the animal data in May. Now, by this point, they'd already injected humans with their vaccine and they were Mm -hmm. already testing it out. So they did those two at the same time. Uh, And Pfizer, BioNTech, I was able to find a little bit more information. Again, they used uh, 12 macaques and 24 mice. Now, that was a reported study. It's quite possible they did other studies that were not reported in mainstream media or on their websites. Very possible. Very likely. Very possible. Yeah. Yeah. So the testing was done in Germany, Texas, and Louisiana on those 12 monkeys and 24 mice. And they did this to determine the extent of antibody development in these animals. So basically they inject them and then they later uh, take biomarkers that measure how many antibodies they developed in response to exposure to the vaccine. Now, for the macaques, not for the mice, it seems, they then exposed them to the virus and tested them to measure the viral RNA presence in their bodies to conclude that the vaccine was effective in not just producing that antibody response, but also preventing infection or symptoms from occurring. They don't appear to have killed either the mice or the monkeys. They certainly don't say that, but that doesn't mean that they didn't. And that doesn't mean they didn't use more animals. Mm. So... um, I yeah, think the, like, we, the likeliness of the mice being killed is is pretty high for my research in um for Planet Friendly News, I wrote a blog about um, how much waste is produced by animal testing. And one of the the biggest uh, 
producers of waste in that system is the amount of mice that are killed. They're almost, I think oh. Dr. Charo had told me that it's 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 like the, almost always all of them. There's no really like retirement program for mice as there is for, um, say, dogs in certain situations that are retired from animal testing and I think um, some apes as well. Mice, there's no such thing. Oh, that's so sad. That's so sad. I live with a rabbit now and I think a lot about rodents. And our friend Leslie Fox did this beautiful post on Facebook yes, the other day about an elderly hamster who she adopted. And yes. I just have such a soft spot for rodents. Too. There was there was a post yesterday here in Manitoba about a cage full of uh, rats, pet rats that had been discovered outside the city limits by city workers. And thankfully they called a local rescue and they were able to rescue these very domesticated team rats. Um, it was a very, very sad post. And I'm, I'm just glad Winnipeg city workers called because these are yeah. these animals, you know, they're they're not just test subjects. They are individuals. Uh, rats are extremely intelligent. Mice can be unbelievable pets. So uh, when we talk about this waste of throwing out mice, it's it's little lives, each one of them. Yeah, little lives, and people dismiss them just because they're small, which is mm-hmm. ridiculous. Like size has no bearing on really anything. Good but that's point. The way we think about it, we love elephants, we love whales, but right. mice, rats, whatever, we just mm. throw them out and call them medical waste. It's that's, awful. Yeah, that's a yeah, true point. Yeah, so these lives matter, and it's it's unfortunate to see them used in this way. So that's that's the testing process. So my understanding, just as I said, is I'm, I'm pretty sure all these companies are doing something similar. Um, so my understanding is that. Yeah, most places in the world do require animal testing or it's always been considered part of like your package if you're a vaccine producer when yep. you bring that to the regulator and get it approved. But usually, of course, they're done, you know, animal tests first to see if there's an immune response and then human tests to evaluate safety and effectiveness in humans. Um, so that's a little bit different here. Now, when it comes to manufacturing, that's another place where animals might be used is to make vaccines. Now, what I've learned so far about the mRNA vaccine, so that's Moderna and Pfizer. Now, mRNA is such an interesting technology. And if you look into it a little bit, it's like it really is a scientific miracle. So essentially, like mRNA vaccines take a small part of the RNA, um, you know, genetic instruction material from the spike protein on the coronavirus uh, virus. And they put that in the vaccine, they inject that into your body. So your body's not being exposed to the entire virus. It's just getting exposed to the spike protein, which is like the way that the virus latches onto your cells and digs in and infects you. So once your body has those instructions on how to destroy the spike protein, it can destroy the entire, uh, you know, COVID virus when it enters your body or not the entire one, but it destroys the spike protein, which makes the virus ineffective in entering your cells. So it offers protection. So it's super interesting technology. Now, a lot of vaccines rely on using animal cells to um, an animal cell biology in the manufacturing process. So everyone probably knows about the flu vaccine. A lot of vegans are concerned that it's usually made using large amounts of eggs. And essentially they like insert the vaccine components into the egg and then incubates in there and then you can later harvest that and turn it into the vaccine Mm. i'm not that's like a very layperson explanation i'm sure it's (laughs) much more technical than that (laughs) but the rna manufacturing process it uses biochemical processes with synthetic as enzymes Mm. now this is great because it doesn't require any animal cells or in vitro cultivation in eggs and it's also great because as a bonus, this takes far less time than using animal cells or eggs, which can take up to four to six weeks to incubate. And it can be just a matter of minutes for match- manufacturing these mRNA vaccines. So to me, that's actually another pretty cool innovation about these vaccines is despite the animal testing that they're doing on the front end, it may offer technological hope that we won't have to rely on eggs for different types of future vaccines. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So then I looked into whether Pfizer and Moderna use any animal ingredients, and it appears that they do not use any in the final vaccine product. But Pfizer apparently uses a milk protein in the manufacturing process. So it's no longer there by the time Mm. it's injected, but it is during the manufacturing it's used. Mm. Kind of in the same way. I mean, I'm sure this process isn't at all analogous, but you know how like wine or I was just going to say that, yeah, like a filtering probably. They use casein as a a filtration. Yeah. So maybe it's something like that. That That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. And then the other thing that I, I was able to find out less information about this, but another potential engagement of using animals is that batches of vaccines made by a manufacturer, they're also tested for pyrogenic contaminants. Mm. And Jess, do you know what that means? 
means I didn't. No, no tell me. Pyrogenic. So pyrogenic, it sounds like, you know, pyrotechnic, fire, right? Yeah. So pyrogenic means like fever causing. So they test oh. to make sure that these vaccines won't cause fever due to bacterial contamination. So that's oh. more just like a purity process than um, something in the manufacturing, but just to make sure, I guess, that like particles or whatever didn't get into the vaccines in the process. Now, this used to be done extensively on rabbits, apparently, and is now often done using the blood of horseshoe crabs, which right. I've heard a little bit about before. Yes, I've, I've seen the pictures of these horrific horseshoe crab farms where they're all hooked up and being drained of some sort. Yeah, it's not great. And, you know, some some vaccine companies or whoever has said, oh, you know, it's not that bad, really. Like, we just take them out, take their blood for a bit, and then we can release them again. But apparently up to 30% of the crabs die, and it's, it's not a great process still. So I don't know. There, I couldn't find any information about whether that was the process for testing the vaccine doses that are being sent to Canada and elsewhere around the world, but it's quite possible that this is engaged mm. too. Yeah, I haven't heard it uh, connected at all to COVID uh, vaccines myself, but that's something to look into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then the last kind of issue that I found that pertains to animals is the potential for developing uh, vaccines using live plants. So some of you folks listening may have read the Toronto Star article back uh, last year about this uh, vaccine called MedicaGo based in Canada. Well, it's a company called MedicaGo and it's partnering with GlaxoSmithKline and creating a vaccine based on using live plants. Mm that apparently grow something called VLPs, virus-like particles, that go in the vaccine and give your body instructions on how to fight off the virus. And it's so interesting. Like they use a plant called Nicotiana, which is related to tobacco. And I know Nicotiana because my mom has some beautiful, mm. uh, you know, some variety of Nicotianas in her garden. They grow like super high. They've got beautiful like scented flowers. And yeah, so apparently it's commonly used for this type of um development for for vaccines because it's just really good at you know accepting whatever instructions it's giving and developing those particles isn't that interesting i've been following this this about plant the plant-based vaccine i've heard a lot of you know people bring it up i'm waiting for the plant-based vaccine and it's canadian it sounds like a win-win but there actually was some animal testing done right because there there always is yeah it seems like there always is at this point um you know global regulators are apparently saying you don't need to to show efficacy in animal tests, like you don't need to infect right. them with the virus to see outcomes, but they do want to see an immune response in the animal model. So antibodies, which we discussed, mm-hmm. so that's why they're still using animal tests. So, uh, but then again, yeah, so they're still doing testing here in mice for antibody response with Medicago. But there's also controversy, Jess, because Medicago, despite deriving their vaccine from plants, it's not like they're a vegan company or anything like that. Of course, of course. <laughs> they also, it's just happened. It's not like they're doing this for ethical reasons. It just happens to be their model. But right. they're also apparently using shark-derived squalane. Oh, no. It's an adjuvant in injections. Yeah. So an adjuvant is, um, it's not the vaccine itself, but it's something injected with the vaccine that helps increase the effectiveness of vaccines. So very common to use adjuvants in vaccines. And squalane is commonly used in vaccines from what I understand. It's also used all over the place in like cosmetics, I think, Mm -hmm. is its major use. It's kind of like a very, very light oil. Now you can derive squalane from plant-based sources like sugarcane. I've got all these cosmetics that say plant-based squalane in them, right? And it comes from sugarcane. Why wouldn't they? I mean, it's, I mean, from a marketing standpoint to say that you're the the plant-based vaccine. I mean, this day and age, we both know to to label anything plant-based is going to be a a big deal. Uh, If there's alternatives, well, I wonder why they wouldn't use it. Yeah, I think it's a cost matter and Uh, like supply chains, they're just used to getting it from sharks. Um, You know, some people have said this could come at an enormous cost to sharks, but uh, GlaxoSmithKline, which uses this squalane and other companies partnering with GSK are using it. um, They've said that they're investigating alternatives, but they don't think that they'll come up with any in the time frame required to distribute the COVID vaccine. So I don't Mm. think we can expect anything there anytime soon, but, uh, you know, it would be really good to see the government support um, you know, investigating alternatives in this way, right? Like Canada just banned shark finning. Right. I mean, and that's, that's really the whole argument, um, for this development of, of alternatives to animal methods is that it needs much more funding. Um, it needs much, it needs to be given much more importance. Um, and this is an, a great example for that is that it's instead of just going with what was always used, 
going with the status quo, sticking to, you know, standard methods of testing, standard methods of manufacturing, standard methods of, you know, using these animal products uh, in vaccines, because that's how it's always been done. You know, why not develop these alternatives? And surely there's probably an environmental aspect that you could you could link it to as well. If you're we all know from the shark fin um, debates uh, from last year that the environmental impact of taking sharks out of the ecosystem is immense. Uh, and if and if we were to do that, I'm going to I'm going to look into that. That sounds like a story to me. I want to know about the environmental implications of using this particular ingredient in vaccines. I think that's a great story. It needs more coverage. Yeah, the New York Times did kind of um, a piece that I found a little bit dismissive about this. So back mm. in October, when people were concerned about squalene. And, uh, you know, some organizations came out with estimates of how many sharks could be killed for these vaccines. And, you know, it was a high number and they were urging the investigation of alternatives. And the New York Times was, you know, a little dismissive. Now, I understand not wanting to play into vaccine hesitancy and, Mm -hmm. you know, give people another excuse not to get vaccines. And and, you know, just for the record, uh, same with this discussion. Like, I don't want anyone to use this animal links as an excuse not to get a vaccine because I think there's really compelling reasons to still get a vaccination. But I did find the Times piece a little dismissive and they were just kind of like, yeah, you know, whatever, sharks, whatever yeah. it happens. Yeah, it's not a surprising, <laughs> it's not surprising. Yeah. So there we are. So that's like, that's my research. That's what I figured out about the use of animals Thank you for doing that, Camille. I've learned a lot here. I'm so glad you stayed up and did all that. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you've written about it too, because I think, so here's kind of where I've landed on this. I um, have always vaccinated uh, myself when available. Although I will say this, when I was in my early 20s, I kind of had a negative perception of vaccines, which I think is often common for people, especially in that demographic, people who are into natural living, like there's lots of data about this. Um, You know, the other group of people that really doesn't want to get vaccines is like Republican men. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) Haven't seen stats on Canada, but perhaps that would be somewhat similar. So I think sometimes people like blame women for, you know, especially younger women for driving this vaccine hesitancy idea, which is not fair. That's the cliche character for sure. Yeah, it's always the young people and it's always the always the women. So, um, you know, I like I can appreciate this idea of natural living and not wanting to um, buy into what pharmaceutical companies are selling. Like there's something to that. Obviously, pharma companies have been complicit in some pretty terrible things over the years. Uh, Exhibit A, the opioid crisis. Yeah. But in this case, uh, there's far more downsides to not getting the vaccine. So first of all, I believe they're quite safe. I've got no qualms about that. The regulators are doing their jobs. They've actually removed the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's an option for people under 55 temporarily while they get more safety data. So to me, that's an example of the system working really effectively. But ultimately, when you think about what the goal is of the work that we're trying to do, Jess, like we're trying to change systems. Mm -hmm. That's what's really important here. It's not about individual purity. It's not about like, you know, oh my gosh, um, you know, I managed to avoid one more animal product in my Mm -hmm. incidental life like today. And that's like a huge victory because what we really need to focus on is changing these systems that require animal tests and supporting the development of alternatives. Yeah. You know, I often, I I have friends sort of on both sides. Um, there, I have some pretty hardcore anti-vax friends and I have a lot of friends who, you know, are, are just going with the flow, doing what, you know, the government instructs, listening to the professionals. Uh, and I listen to both of them on a, on a regular basis and I understand everybody's, you know, fears and, and trepidation and things like that. I'm often asked as a vegan, you know, like we said about our, our concerns about big pharma, you know, how can you, when you're somebody who regularly writes about, you know, what's wrong with big pharma and the, and the systems in place that are ineffective or dangerous, harmful to animals, and then just go along and, and do what they tell you to do. And my answer is, if I get sick, <laughs> if I get sick and I can't write these articles anymore, how effective is that, right? How effective is it if someone like you or someone like I or anybody out there with compassion for animals, you know, letter writers, activists, vegans of any sort, animal compassion, people of any sort, how, how helpful is it if you get sick and unwell and you're, un, you're unable to continue fighting the system that requires these things to happen? I think that's a really important point. We've all seen over the last 12 months how 
absolutely awful and difficult it's been to try to get the media to focus on anything but COVID. That's been hugely detrimental to groups trying to campaign on animal advocacy Mm -hmm. issues. It's just there's no space. The media is so busy trying to cover this important global story that animals often just get short shrift. And same with legislators too, right? Like they're busy trying to protect people from COVID and they don't have time to think about animal issues. So until we get this pandemic under control, we're just kind of, you know, in this waiting phase, we can't make as much progress as we normally would. That's another great point. That's another great point. Let's get this over with so that we can go back to the climate crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. I know. I know. Think about how, you know, prominent Greta Thunberg was before. Yes. We got here, how Fridays for Future were really taking off, and now nothing. Like, it's just not even a discussion anymore. We have to get through this. That's a very good point. And yeah, I think your point about individual purity, um, I I think that's something that a lot of um, vegans and animal compassion people can get caught up in sometimes. And we don't live in a vegan world. You know, sometimes these, and even the definition itself, as far as is practical and possible, right? And I think that applies here immensely. Yeah, sometimes it's just not practical or possible to, you know, be strict about it. Um, You know, if you think about this way, refusing the vaccine is not going to save a single animal. It's not like a choice where you sit down and order a meal at a restaurant and you can decide to order a dish with chicken or fish in it, or you can decide to order some vegetables and lentils. Like, it's just not like that. The math doesn't work in the same way. Mm -hmm. These vaccines have been developed. They're being developed. Whether we decide to take them or not, they're still going to exist. And the impact of our individual actions on the fate of animals is just very low. Now, I get the idea of a consumer boycott and not wanting to support these companies that are doing these animal tests. Like, I totally get that. And I don't want to support them either, but I also don't want to die from COVID. Right. I don't want my friends and family to die from COVID for, you know, no good reason, considering the vaccine already exists. And considering that boycotting it is just not actually going to save or make a difference for any animals. So my own perspective is that it's better to get the vaccine as soon as you can, whichever one's offered, and then keep working on, um, you know, doing human first research and shifting Canada and the rest of the world to that model. So, you know, an example of something that you could do if you feel strongly about this issue is, um, you know, keep in mind that in Canada, we don't actually have national oversight over the use of animals in lab research. We just have this voluntary process where this nonprofit called the Canadian Council on Animal Care sort of has these voluntary guidelines that labs should adhere to. And if they don't, uh, well, first of all, they only inspect every three to five Mm -hmm. years with a pre-announced visit. Mm -hmm. And second of all, if a lab isn't in compliance, they'll just get into compliance. Uh, The only like, you know, enforcement tool they have is a recommendation that the government shouldn't fund that lab anymore, Mm -hmm. which is a really blunt tool. And it's apparently never actually been used. Right. So we have this completely ineffective oversight system for animals used in labs. And I think a better way to, you know, channel that energy if you're concerned about this issue is asking MPs to put in voluntary, or sorry, not voluntary, but binding laws in place and a binding legal enforcement system for labs so we can actually monitor them and know what's going on in them. Yes, and and further to support work um, of those trying to find alternatives. We have, um, what's that group out of BC um, that's working with schools to educate um, beyond um, using animals uh, for education? What's that group called? Yeah, the Society for Humane Science. Dr. Elizabeth Ormandy runs it, and they're amazing. right. I love them. The work they do, I remember I met them at the Canadian Animal Law Conference. Um, She was lovely. Her presentation was great, very you know, starting sort of grassroots, showing kids that, you know, animals don't need to be used as education tools. Um, and then working up to, you know, work like that we've already discussed with Dr. Charu, finding alternatives to animal methods and really working to change the system that it doesn't, this archaic system that requires these animal models that are 90% ineffective. <laughs> It's amazing when you hear that story, but 90% of drugs found to be effective in animals are just not viable when they make it to human clinical trials. Like we need human models first. Right. And human models, of course, we don't mean people necessarily, you know, the the work that they're doing at the Canadian Center for Alternatives to Animal Methods are, you know, working with tissues and stem cells and 3D printing. And, you know, Dr. Char was creating actual mini organs, you know, a pancreas or a or a, a liver and then, and then, you know, dropping disease in there and seeing how it affects. There's just, it's, it's unbelievable the things that are being developed uh, and without government funding and without so far consideration uh, as being a standard within the system. It's, it's, that's what we need to be fighting for. 
Absolutely. It's not just good for animals, but it also makes more sense scientifically. Like animal testing is an outdated model. And I know a lot of animal researchers are just so invested into it at this point in their career that they're unable to admit that. But frankly, that's what the science suggests. So we can't leave it to the industry to start moving in the right direction. We really need government support for places like the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods. And there's a global network of nonprofits and universities and academic centers working on those issues. And I just think that that is the future. Uh, we need to change systems. We mm -hmm. don't just need a vaccine boycott because that's not going to do anyone any good. Boom. I think that's it right there. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope y'all found this useful <laughs> in some way. Um, hope it yeah, didn't just I, make I was... you more confused. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I feel enlightened. I feel you've, you've taught me some things here. So thanks, Camille. Well, it was an interesting deep dive into this issue. So I'm glad for the opportunity to hopefully fill people in a little bit on it. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Heroes and Zeros. We're moving on to everybody's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. <laughs> All right. Well, the hero was easy this week because there is a stunning new documentary out on Netflix called Seaspiracy. I'm sure a lot of you have already seen it because it seems like half of my you know, social media feed has. But wow, Jess, it is just uh, I think it was the perfect documentary, as our colleague Shannon Nickerson, mm. our podcast producer, said uh, the other day in one of our staff meetings. It really was perfect. So it takes you through the global fishing industry, essentially fishing, fish farms, um, you know, other creatures that might be killed in the water, like marine mammals, like whales. And it starts by talking about sustainability and, um, you know, kind of takes you through the, the narrator's journey, figuring out these issues for himself. And he ends up just concluding that um, this is a completely horribly damaging industry for the planet that we are, you know, decades, if not just years away from completely having killed our oceans and that we all just need to lay off. Mm -hmm. um, I think as Captain Paul Watson, head of Sea Shepherd Conservation Society said in the film, we don't need to save the ocean. We just need to leave it alone. Oh, that's a great quote. That's a great quote. And the impact that this documentary has already had. I cannot believe the amount of people discussing it online. I can't believe the amount of my own friends in real life, non-vegan, non-real animal people who are coming to me and saying, oh my God, Jessica, I just watched Seaspiracy. I'm never eating fish again. And of course, my next comment is, okay, can you watch Cowspiracy next, please? <laughs> <laughs> don't forget about the cows. Yes, don't forget about it. But that's, yeah. that seems to be a, a fun part of the conversation is that this... For some reason, maybe just the timing, everyone's sitting at home watching Netflix, <laughs> quarantining, uh, that, that it has made such a huge impact. People people are really concerned about fish in the oceans and how it affects everything on this planet. Yeah, it was so enlightening to learn more about that because, uh, you know, obviously I haven't eaten fish in years and I understand these issues reasonably well, but I learned a ton about the ways that the ocean affects uh, the land and weather mm -hmm. patterns and all kinds of things. And not just, you know, the fact of the ocean existing, but like the biodiversity within it is hugely important. So it was just a wealth of information. I was just blown away. Um, it's not it's not like a Dominion or Earthling style film where you have to look away for most of it. It's there are a couple difficult scenes, mostly involving killing whales. But for the most part, it's it's uh, easier to watch. So if that's mm -hmm. a concern for you, don't mm -hmm. be afraid of it for that reason. But yeah, Jess, I, I've heard the same thing from people who say that they're swearing off seafood forever, which is great. And uh, I just love that Netflix is promoting it. Like every time I open Netflix, it's the mm -hmm. top thing, like the thing that autoplays. So yeah, I think it's moving amazing. up every day in like the most watched or something. Last, I think it was like second or something like that. So oh. that's only helpful. Yeah. And yeah, the, the, the people who I've talked to are swearing off fish. You know, it's not necessarily because like you say, they're showing anything graphic. You know, we, we discussed so much about, I've written a lot about, about, you know, how fish feel pain and stuff, but this is more, people are just angry. They're just pissed about the ethical, you know, how wrong the industry is and, you know, how many other animals are being killed unfairly. You know, it's just, it's the... The, the lack of justice in it all that is really seeming to to motivate people. Yeah, whether we're talking about the impact on you know fish themselves as individuals, uh, the impact on fish because they're bycatch, uh, impact on dolphins and sea turtles as bycatch, uh, you know whales as well, or sea slavery. That's another yeah. that's another really important aspect of this. Is the film discussed in some detail what it's like to be a modern slave living on a fishing boat, which is very very common in this industry. Mm -hmm. 
So gosh, if you have not seen it yet, please go in and watch it. I really have hopes that this is going to be like the black fish for fishes. Right. <laughs> because they're so marginalized. Like, you know, when people start cutting animal products out of their diets, fishes are also always the last thing always to go. Always last. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Yeah. So definitely our so. hero this week. Thank you to Seaspiracy Filmmakers. Bravo. For every hero, this is zero. Oh, here we go. My favorite. Our zero this week comes out of... Alberta. So it is a... Imagine that. Imagine that. Funny how that happens. This has never happened before. Uh, It's a a private member's bill that would declare rodeo the province's official sport. It's passed unanimously and will now proceed to the next stage of debate in the legislature. Wow. 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 Wow, Wow, indeed. So we spoke about this a few episodes back and uh, yeah, it hasn't slowed down. It went for committee hearings. Jess, I actually tried to testify at the committee and they were like, no, we don't want to hear from you. They just wouldn't let you? Yeah, they wouldn't let me. They said they'd already decided who they were going to hear from and I wasn't on the list. Oh my gosh. How fair is that? Uh, Yeah. So they really want to make rodeo a well-noted cruel i mean do we even call it sport i think i saw our, our friend jan arden say something like i wonder how you know basketball players feel about this being called a sport you know that that we know we know that there are high welfare concerns we know animals die we know animals are are harmed in this and it's like it's just being ignored and and not just Completely. ignored but like doubled down to now become the official sport I mean, there are a lot of people in Alberta who care about animals who, you know, are hoping to see the stampede um, evolve into, you know, not using animals anymore. I wonder how they feel about having their province, you know, potentially name this as their sport. Well, my understanding is that a lot of people are just not very happy about this. Like I, right. I was born in Calgary. My father and stepmom still live there and I've got lots of family there and they are not particularly animal welfare oriented, but they don't like this. Uh, and there were letters to the editor in various mm-hmm. Calgary newspapers talking about how this is unnecessarily divisive. People who live in Alberta, this is you know not an activity that most people engage in. You know, everyone has the opportunity to play hockey or, you know, better yet, even basketball, which has fewer equipment and financial barriers to entry. Like there's all kinds of kinds of sports that are accessible to the public, accessible to people from lower income households. Rodeo is not one of them. Right. And I can only imagine if you're a member of, you know, a team that plays a sport and has brought a claim to your province that you'd feel pretty left out by this. And and it's not only the animal issue, which is obviously, I think, the, the greatest of all, but um, there's also some some racial issues um, that, you know, this was a settler sport. This was brought here by settlers and the industry itself is marred by racism. And so you really think at a time like this. So first of all, we're grouping a bunch of people together. We're grouping a bunch of animals together and we're promoting a sport with noted um, issues of racism. Are those three things things that you think should be happening at this point in time? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say no, personally. Right, right, right. So thank you, private members, Bill. You are this week's zero. (laughs) Well, on that note, that's our that's our episode this week. We did it. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We got through it. Hope we don't lose too many listeners after talking about (laughs) vaccines so openly. (laughs) Yes. We're good. You know, let us know what you thought. I'm I'm curious, like tweet at us if you have thoughts about that and want to continue the conversation. We think it's important enough that we dedicated an episode to this. So there we go. Yes. I think I learned some things and I, and I hope our listeners did too. All right, Jess, until next time. See you later. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Paw and Order. And for more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!